0: So I brought you a visual prop this evening, and of course the problem with this visual prop is that it is too small for the hall. But it's a vase. And we're in the middle of a one-month retreat or a two-month retreat, so I brought you an empty vase. If it was a weekend retreat, I probably would have filled it with something and talked about what was in there. but um, we're in the heart of this retreat. We're in the depths, all of us. So the vase tonight is empty. And um, really images like this in the tradition stand as metaphors. Uh, And the metaphor that uh, came to my heart this evening is the metaphor of space. So we have this vase and, you know, we can know and sense the space inside the vase. We can know and sense the space outside the vase. And the, again, the metaphor that's sometimes used is the vase as our uh, kind of contracted, particularized, separate, sense of self. So it's like the space in here is separate from all the other space. And it appears that way. And we appear that way. At times, right? But in essence, it's not so. Uh, these, are, these are intermingled, these spaces. Uh, they're connected. And these spaces in their essence have huge potential. Huge sense of possibility in manifest appearances. So, I'm actually not giving a talk tonight on emptiness. I had to remind myself, Heather, that's the next talk, that <laughs> um, I wanted to bring you the vase. And I also wanted to share with you my favorite, my all-time favorite opening line of a Dharma talk ever. And my all-time favorite line of a Dharma talk ever that opened a talk was a talk I heard years and years ago by Ajahn Sumedho, And he started the talk in his... Uh, th- those of you who sat with him or heard his recordings, his big booming American voice, the doors to the deathless are open! I love it that Oren brought it in. I've never actually had a colleague, I've never had anybody I taught with bring in that line. And I didn't know when I heard Ajahn Samato say it that it was a teaching of the Buddha. But I wished in my heart of hearts that every single Dharma talk that I ever had the opportunity to hear would open with something that bold. That would just really invite me into that sense of potentiality and possibility. I think sometimes some of us that were raised in the Dharma in the West and and maybe we haven't had a personal uh, teacher that was um, you know, one of the greats, one of the so-called masters and and it's like we start to wonder are the doors to the deathless open? Is awakening possible? Maybe I'll just go on one month retreat to deal with all my problems. And they're certainly here, aren't they? (laughs) and we're totally attending to them. So it's a very important part of the process of awakening. And there's more than that. So tonight I want to offer kind of another, I guess we could say another map, yet another way of unfolding the relationality of these teachings the relationship between our ethical conduct supporting concentration, the way that concentration as a part of our mindfulness practice supports deepening insight. And I got an image this afternoon. I was sitting in my room, finishing up this reflection, and I looked out my window and There's the hill there, and there's a trail, and it's one of the trails that goes way up the mountain. And it was so interesting when it was raining, I didn't see any of you guys out there, you know, but now, it's just every time I glance out, another um, color of, you know, somebody's coat or pants, or just these glimmers of red and blue or black, or, you know, all I could see were your, the colors of your clothes from that far away, and just these bodies moving across this mountain and the trails. And I realized that's actually um, a really good metaphor for the reflection this evening. So as I'm talking about various themes, that you imagine that you're on one of those trails. And I often reflect about how a path is made. Right? It's just the land and a path is made because we and the deer and other creatures walk on it over and over. It makes sense to go that way, right? So the path is formed. And these maps are maps of ways that minds groove. You know? So we have the neurotic grooves in our mind but there are also grooves of awakening. So we want to know what those paths are, what those grooves are, and then see how our individual vase, mindstream, grooves with that, right? Because it's always individual. So I was thinking, oh, yeah, I get on the trails here, and I'm walking, and, you know, sometimes the way it is, I'm sure we've all experienced this here, but it's just like, it's magic. It's beautiful. We go, wow. And it's just like, we're right there with it, right there with it. And, you know, sometimes it gets so beautiful and so magical. I don't know if this has happened to you. It's definitely happened to me. Where I get out there on the trails in the land and it's so alive and so awake and the thought just comes, wow, I think I'm waking up right here. I think this is it. You know, I have had that thought on these trails. It's a very common pattern that comes up when um, our direct experience opens further than what we're familiar with and there's an intuitive knowing that like, ah, ah, this is the direction I wanna go. I don't wanna turn around and go back the other way, right? But then inevitably we'll also come over like a rise and down into the valley and it's filled with trees and it's like, oh, it's kind of boxed in. It's kind of, I'm not sure, a little scary, a little disoriented, not feeling so good here. It's like, where's the breakthrough? You know, out the other side. And we keep walking and we keep walking and we orient, right? On the path, we keep walking and we pop out the other side. And it's like, it's such a mystery where the breakthrough happens. In the end, it happens here. But it's still such a mystery, huh? So what I want to talk about tonight are cycles in practice and themes as insight keeps developing. But really the key headline is the principle of cycles. And um, also how important balance is. And just like Dura was talking about with equanimity, I loved that image of the seesaw. You know? And it's like, oh, if we've got two kids on the seesaw, and balancing and balancing. Balance is a verb. We're in relationship with balance of different cycles and different factors throughout the practice. So we're launching in. You got your hiking boots on? No, warm coat, it helps. So one of the ways we can put our hiking boots on and and throw on a warm coat are returning again and again and again to celebrating our basic integrity. This is the ground of the practice. And um, most of the time when Dhamma is is shared and taught and um, non-monastics especially are trained, start with the precepts. And here in the West, that wouldn't go over very well in the promotional material. Take a whole month just to practice the five precepts and then we'll teach you meditation. Would you come? You know, I mean, you'd actually be contributing something huge to the world if you came. But we're a little different here in the West. So I want to share with you a quote from the Buddha about how the uh, ethical conduct supports the settling and the collectedness of the mind, which is actually the way I describe samadhi, or concentration. the Settling and collecting of the mind, of the attention. Protect your happiness, the Buddha said. Protect your happiness. He said, it is natural then, in a virtuous person, that in a virtuous person, freedom from remorse will arise. So this is to be free from remorse at having done harm. We don't have to rehash it because we didn't do it to begin with. This is helpful. But it continues, it is natural that in a person free from remorse, gladness will arise. The kind of joy of being free from remorse That in a glad person, rapture will arise. Rapture being a kind of delighted interest in things, a kind of joyous response to the world. It's a beautiful way of describing pity. That in an enraptured person, the body will be calm. That the person of calmed body will feel pleasure And that the mind of a person feeling pleasure will become concentrated. And that a person whose mind is concentrated will see things as they actually are. That is, deep insight or wisdom. And that a person seeing things as they actually are will grow dispassionate. And that a dispassionate person will realize the knowledge and vision of release which is another way of describing awakening. So we could say that the precepts function as both uh, path and fruit, is sometimes how we describe it. So it's really wonderful, I feel, that we're actually retaking the precepts every week on this retreat, to reconnect and reconnect and reconnect. And while we're walking the path of developing our integrity, Um, you know, we're taking one. It's like, maybe the next time you take them, check it out and go, huh, I haven't really been focusing on number two very much. Maybe the next week I'll really look at not taking what isn't given. Or, oh, really celebrating. Wow, I think I've really been contributing to the great gift of this Um, alone together of this incredible noble silence that we're in that our nobility really shines forth that we practice and it's definitely progress not perfection as I said the first morning this 12-step term there's another wonderful practice from the 12-step tradition that to me fits in here beautifully and it's like as we're practicing these trainings in non-harming and we're practicing them in progress, not perfection, we're actually acting as if we're awake. And if we keep acting as if we're awake and as if our deepest you know, commitment in every single moment is not cause harm, then we actually start living that. So acting as if is not faking it in the 12-step tradition, it's actually being inspired by something and then pivoting our whole being into it and letting it shine forth. It's a great practice. The precepts also function as kind of a fruition, right? So the result. And what we start to notice is when the sense of self starts to soften, the way that we um, treat ourselves and treat others also becomes softer, more intimate, we're listening more, it's more connected, it's more kind. It just happens that way. We don't actually have to do anything at that point in the cycle. So that's the ground, the ethical conduct, okay? And the relationship between that ground and the development of a collected and settled mind, which we're absolutely doing. If you are in any way worried about your concentration on this retreat, I remembered today um, something that Sylvia Borstein, who's a founding teacher here, said the last time I taught this retreat, and she was on the teaching team. And she said, you know what, guys? I don't think she said guys, that's my term. <laughs> you know what, guys? If you just show up to this retreat and practice the precepts and follow the noble silence and, you know, more or less follow the schedule as your body allows, you don't even have to really meditate. Like, your mind will settle and collect, and you'll be just fine. <laughs> do you love that? When I first heard her talk about that years ago, I was like, oh, that's so reassuring. Is it true? <laughs> and then I really started thinking about all my years of long retreats and all the times I've taught them, and I realized, yeah, there is truth in it. It doesn't have to be, like, 100% true, but it really helps us just relax and float along and not have to push so hard. We're in the zone. We're already in the field. We can rest back and let it carry us at times at this point. So I wanted to share with you a quote that I enjoy about the relationship between um, the concentration component of mindfulness because uh, really, I see these two as is very connected. Uh, you know, uh, a truly mature mindfulness has a degree of steadiness. That's part of concentration. So it's it's, it's one interbeing. And so this is a, a quote from sixth century Chinese Buddhist master Tiantai. Puts it like this: There are many paths for entering the reality of Nirvana. But in essence, they are all contained with two practices, stopping and seeing. So that's one phrase, stopping and seeing. He continues, stopping is the primary gate for overcoming the bounds of compulsiveness. Seeing is the essential requisite for ending confusion. Stopping is the wholesome resource that nurtures the mind. Seeing is the marvelous art which fosters intuitive understanding. Stopping is the effective cause of attaining concentrative repose. And seeing is the very basis of enlightened wisdom. So then he talks about balance. A person who attains both concentration and wisdom has all the requisites for self-help and for helping others. So important. It should be known then that these two techniques are like two wheels of a chariot, two wings of a bird. If their practice is lopsided, you will fall from the path. Therefore, the sutra says, to one-sidedly cultivate the merits of concentrative repose without practicing understanding is called dullness. To one-sidedly cultivate knowledge without practicing repose is called being crazed. (laughs) Sixth century. (laughs) Dullness and craziness, although they are somewhat different, are the same in that they both perpetuate an unwholesome perspective. So it's not helpful. And when we attain the balance, we can better help ourselves and better help others. It's this, uh, this great compassionate heart of awakening that cares. So stopping and seeing... And so Donald this morning was talking about uh, momentary concentration, which is the concentration that um, is the steadiness of attention ongoing with changing objects of experience. So there's a steady sense of connection, of intimacy, with arising and passing sound, thoughts, emotions, breath, sensation. So the attention isn't sliding off and falling in a hole. It isn't drifting off into some more pleasant fantasy. It's intimately connected moment by moment, which is why it's called momentary concentration. So the process cycles. Every single one of us knows this. And the image that I use somatically for the cycles with with concentration but with plenty of other things in these retreats too is it goes like this it's like you have your hand and then it's rising up in a wave so it's a wave movement and there's the peak of the wave and that falls and the valley of the wave and then the peak of the wave and then the valley of the wave and that's what it's doing right so it's really easy to believe when we don't know that practice is a wave, (laughs) that it cycles, that when it's peaked we've got it and when it's valleyed we've lost it. And I really want to thank you all, especially those of you that have been sitting this retreat, you know, for years or off and on for years because I already knew this in my own practice quite intimately, but let me tell you something. Sitting down with 8, 10, 12 of you every morning and like being so um, invited in to your cycles like this you see how universal it is. This is just not a personal process. This is how it works. You know? So it's been really helpful for me to see that on a big, big scale instead of just in this own mind-body system. right? And so I would ask you actually in this moment um, check you might have awareness of where the concentration cycle is for you now. Whether it's really steady, whatever that means for you. you. know, It's kind of a peak. Or whether your mind's all over the map and you're like, I've been here for two weeks. How could this be possible? Meditative failure. <laughs> you know, And then hopefully in parentheses you say to yourself, wrong. Just wrong. Okay? But just check inside and see, where are you? And, and if you're somatically based, like I am, you could even put your hand out and, you know, put it higher, or put it lower. We'll all close our eyes so nobody can see, but if it helps you to feel where you are through your body, check it out and put your hand or it might be moving down like this or moving up like this. Where is the practice now knowing that it's waving and changing? i just feel it this is where it is now and feel how the hand knows what the next you know movement is right <laughs> we don't know when it could be peaked for 2 weeks not usually could be valid for 2 weeks not usually in fact i could say rarely because it's really it's waving you know so that's the mystery. We don't know when, we don't know how. But here's the key. It's so easy to say and it is so hard to do. The key when we feel like we've lost it and the mind is everywhere and our attention is we don't even know where, the key is non-struggle. Because if we're in kind of a valley where the steadiness and the collectedness of mind is not available, and that's all, it's just not available right now. It's like we got voicemail on it. So it's just, it's kind of flatlining down here. And if we struggle with it and go, I'm a terrible meditator. I don't know what I did wrong. I better push harder. I better get that other cushion. Maybe if I just have my right buttocks up a little higher, it's all going to be okay. You know, all the things that we tell ourselves, we're perpetuating this. We're feeding this with attention. We're feeding this... um, this low point, and if we just go, oh yeah, mind's everywhere, you know, the collectedness and intimacy with one thing at a time is nowhere to be found, and it's like this, this is what it's like, you know, this is the feeling tone, whatever it is for you, this is how it feels in the body, and just like, okay, then it'll just go back up again, it just does, it cycles through the retreat cycles in our daily life too but it's a different cycle. So we've got the ground of the ethical conduct of of celebrating our integrity and uh, this process in the initial um, mindfulness or insight instructions uh, that we revisit all the way through the retreat of settling and collecting, keeping it simple, coming back again and again to one thing, right? Whether it's the breath or whether it's the meta wish or all the different ways that we can have a primary object or a home base, however you want to call it. Uh, and we're stopping, but we're also seeing. So part of the reason we keep it simple is just to s- settle things down so that we can see more clearly, right? So then the question is, what are we seeing? What are we trying to see here? And one of the fundamental things that we can be on the lookout for when we're walking down that trail is the direct experience of the three characteristics, which we brought up in this retreat over and over again because those three characteristics of our humanness, our wisdom lenses. They allow us to see through the eyes of wisdom. So we've named them as anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. The way I put it in very simple language that I can remember and repeat to myself often, everything changes. When we hold on, it hurts. It's not personal. And then sometimes in parentheses behind it, I put, it's not personal the way that I was trained it was. Because sometimes the mind rebels and goes, it is personal, and we're back in the vase. It's like, oh right, not personal the way I was taught. The way that the values say is so. So I wanted to introduce you to somebody and then share a teaching from her. Uh, one of my my great inspirations um, in terms of uh, f- uh, trust in awakening and the unfolding in my own practice, even though I've never met her, uh, she was actually born in 1901 and passed away in 1978, and her name was Upasika Key, and so. Upasaka Ki was one of the foremost women teachers in the Thai forest tradition in the last century. So she was born just west of Bangkok, um, grew up in a merchant family, ran her own business as a young woman, and then left the business world to practice dhamma full time and had some very, very powerful practice and became an inspiration first for women in Thailand, and then for people of all genders all over the world. I want to acknowledge that Opasika Ki does not hold her punches in her teaching. You know, she's not interested in it being touchy-feely, um, and you know, bring in lots of different voices in this retreat. So. Here's some of her initial meditation instructions one time and it starts simple and goes all the way to the goal in a couple paragraphs and definitely touches into the three characteristics. Start your meditation by brushing aside all external concerns and turn to look inside at your own mind until you know what ways it is clear or murky calm or unsettled to do this put mindfulness and alertness in charge as you keep aware of body and mind until you've trained the mind to stay firmly in a state of normalcy or neutrality okay so it's definitely talking about settling and collecting but let's talk about this word normalcy isn't it fascinating to think about living a life where having a non-reactive mind is normal She's talking about fundamental normalcy of an awakened mind. So, Once the mind, she says, can stay in a state of normalcy, (parentheses non-reactivity, you will see mental fabrications and preoccupations in their natural state of arising and disbanding. The mind will then become en- empty, neutral, and still, neither pleased or displeased, and we'll see physical and mental phenomenon as they arise and disband, naturally, of their own accord. Okay. So the first section was stopping, the next section is seeing, they go together, they enter, inform, and support each other. Thirdly, when the knowledge that there is no self to any of these things becomes thoroughly clear, you will meet with something that lies further inside beyond all suffering and stress, free from the cycles of change, deathless, free from birth as well as death. For all things that take birth must by nature, age, grow ill and die. When you see this truth clearly, the mind will be empty, not holding on to anything. So what are we trying to see? You know. That's a high bar that she's describing and yet some of us here in this retreat or other retreats have had our own direct experience of these characteristics. And we also will have direct experience because we planted ourselves here and like Sylvia says, if we just kind of hang out long enough, uh, something's gonna happen. So we keep going. And there are these endless cycles of confidence in the path and doubt in the path. So say a little bit about that. We had the whole Dharma talk a long time ago in the retreat with the hindrances and uh, doubt and working with doubt as a hindrance, which is part of the process. So, um, bringing in some of these teachings we've had in the last couple of nights and and also earlier, it's like, particularly thinking about the five spiritual faculties, when doubt arises in its cycles as a hindrance, that can be a really helpful teaching to go back to. So the first thing is we have to remember what it is, okay? So we've got the faith or the trust, uh, the energy, the mindfulness, the concentration. The wisdom and the way that those balance themselves. And when the doubt comes, look and see, how's the energy? Is the energy balanced with the concentration or is the mind drooping or getting freaked out? You know, I'm putting this in very simple terms. What's the balance between the trust and the wisdom? How's the mindfulness? Is there any fine tuning that's needed? Doubt is so difficult because we don't actually want to work with it. Just one of those, I mean, all the hindrances we don't really want to work with, but doubt, it produces so many thoughts. For some of us, it's just like, I just got to survive this thing. And that's fine. We're all still here, so clearly we've survived some doubt cycles, right? Um, But there's more. I want to actually talk a little bit about doubt as a fetter, though. So if we, if we look at the dynamics of, of doubt as an arising kind of energy, uh, mental, physical energy, uh, it's also got a very deep root. And at the bottom of the root, we, we could call uh, these fetters. I don't know if we've talked about this yet, this retreat. But a lot of the dynamics of self and selfing have some very, very deep root systems. You know, they're dug in, really dug in. And so that's what, that's what in the Buddhist tradition are called the fetters. And so there's also doubt as a fetter. And just to distinguish it a little bit between the bubbling up from doubt as a hindrance, I want to share with you a quote from Tani Bhikkhu. The fetter of doubt is defined as doubt in the awakening of the Buddha, the truth of the Dhamma, and the practice of the Sangha. Okay. So, that sounds a little bit similar to some definitions of doubt as a hindrance. Let's keep going. What this uncertainty boils down to is de- it's doubt as to whether there is a deathless dimension. M- doubt to whether there is awakening itself. And whether one can realize it through one's own efforts. The experience of the deathless following on the practice of Dhamma to the point of entering the stream of Dhamma, cuts this fetter by confirming the possibility of a human being's awakening to the deathless, the correctness of the Buddha's teaching as a guide, and the worthiness of those who have experienced this, who have entered this stream of Dhamma." So, doubt's a tricky one. And, And just to be aware, it's got a deep root. And so sometimes we're working with it as a hindrance, and other times we're actually whittling away at that deeper root and you may not know what you're doing. You know, it may not make a lot of sense but you just sort of get this intuition. I feel like it's dropped down a level. And always the way it came up in my own mind was like whittling away at these fetters, just whittling away. So as Tani Sarabhiko said in the end, doubt is dissolved by direct experience of insight. No. it's only until we know directly. So I was reading through Jack Cornfield's book after the ecstasy of the laundry. I just wanna share one example. I'm kind of just dropping in tonight in a lot of different ways. This um this pointing to to deepening insight. And to awakening, and I want to make it really clear when I say the word awakening, I mean it in a very global way. There are so many different expressions of the awakening mind, heart, body, and they're all valid and they're all important and they're beautiful. So this is one practitioner. It was during a walking meditation in the garden near the temple. I can remember the exact spot. I lifted my foot and put it down on the earth and felt all the sensations of moving and knew that there was no one to whom it happened. No self at all. The thought came, it's an empty process. And this thought was as empty as the step. I walk around a lot in retreat and in my life too, and things happen and I'm just like, oh, it's a process happening to a system. Oh. These are all pointers into kind of um, softening the solid separate sense of self, of, of understanding more causes and conditions. And pointers. And so we start to develop confidence, oh, I wonder how many of you stood outside in the rain. That's what I used to love to do here. I would sit out. Um, I would sit or walk out in the courtyard right by the water place there, right where you look out over. And I remember this one retreat here, 2000. It was the retreat here in 2000. And I had left a teaching job where I had a group of 60 kindergarten and first graders under my watch and I'd actually left the job to come on two-month retreat. I, it's the only time I've ever done something that irresponsible. The call was just too loud. It all worked out okay, but honestly, it, wasn't, um, it was kind of a reckless thing to do. And, you know, some of us have reckless practice stories. I'm not recommending it. It's kind of like the story I told last time about when I, you know, blew out my knee because I wasn't listening to my body just saying that was the context and so I get to the retreat and I kid you not it rains every single day of February every day and I'm thinking wow I'm not in a classroom with 65 and 6 year olds I was ecstatic (laughs) (laughs) and I just stand out on that deck and just watch the particles and feel the particles and it was the intimacy with the impermanence became so rich that I didn't have to ask myself, is everything like this? When it gets really deep, there's knowing everything is like this. There's no more doubt. So then we can very easily move into cycles, and and it happens not uncommonly, that we start to feel like, ah, I got it. This is pretty good. This is really good. So, um, These cycles of meditation experiences where we think that we're permanently enlightened. And make no mistake about it, some of the greatest masters of our time have gone through these cycles. And they'll often tell stories about when they thought they were enlightened and then they got pissed off and realized they weren't enlightened. It happens. So some of the things that can happen to us anywhere between like the mindfulness becomes so strong or the insight or the faith You know, the kind of energies of the body, whether it's the um, rapture or the calm. Um, More happiness, maybe, than we've ever experienced. Maybe the equanimity becomes unshakable, and it's like nothing's ever going to bother me again. (laughs) You know, until dot, 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 somebody drops that thing right next to me in the dining hall, and (laughs) Um, it happens. It's part of the cycles and all of these things are really beautiful and the problem is believing that it's more than it is you know or believing in some sort of oh i just had some stream entry or i just had some enlightenment and now i'm going to live in enlightened retirement uh i used to wish for that it's this is when it's really important to have a community um, to you know that you're checking in with us every few days, so you can check it out. We can check it out with you. There's no shame in it. It's like it's just part of these cycles of practice, you know. And and to not like run away from the beauty and the power of the practice because you're so afraid that you're going to get attached. Please don't do that. You know, on one hand we get too attached, but the other dynamic I see in Western communities is that we avoid actually fully resting in to the power of the practice because we're afraid we're going to get attached. So I have been known to say individually and apparently now at a whole group level, oh, be attached! You know? And I'll check in with you soon and make sure that, you know, actually that it keeps moving and that you don't get stuck in that cycle. I'm not saying, oh, be attached. I'm saying, don't avoid because you're afraid of being attached. Savor the beauty of your own practice. You want deepening. And so just when we think things are humming along, you know, it's like, wow, amazing. So here's a peek, right? I think I just got, well, maybe not enlightened, but definitely wiser than I ever thought I'd be in my whole life. And that may be true, actually. We wait and see. That's a whole nother talk I'm going to give to. This is giving precludes. Um, But we're up here and then it goes down, right? And so we move into cycles of purification. It's very natural. We haven't done anything wrong. In fact... Um, I often say to people that um, I know better in practice, I'll say, you know, if you're going through a cycle of purification and really moving down into some of these deep roots, actually practice is progressing. Practice is deepening. It's great news. I know it sucks. I know you wouldn't wish it on your worst dot, dot, dot sometimes, but it's actually continuing to practice. And like, can we each remind ourselves in moments, oh, this is really hard. Hmm, maybe I'm in one of those cycles of purification. Huh, maybe it means actually that practice is progressing, i.e. it's continuing to unfold. That's what progressing means, right? It's, we haven't died yet. It's continuing to unfold. <laughs> so I'll talk about a few themes here. One theme that's really common, particularly in a long retreat like this, but in shorter retreats, in daily life as well, is what I call death cycles, where everything starts to feel like it's dying or falling apart. I remember distinctly, actually, one of the early powerful times that this happened to me, and again, I was sitting in this empty seat in the front row, um, and I remember that particularly because it was late at night and almost everybody was gone from the hall. And uh, so I started meditating with my eyes open and I was looking at the candles right here. And and everything had become very ephemeral and fleeting and flickering and it had been that way for some time. It was, it was actually uh, next week in the retreat. So closer to the end of the two months. And, and all of a sudden, everything just started to fall apart. It was just all falling away. Everything that the attention landed on was falling away. And it just all felt like it was dying. And I still remember what came to my mind. As tears started pouring down my face, it was just like everything is arising and passing away it's all slipping through my fingers. It's all slipping through my fingers. And then when I wrote it down later, it was, it's all slipping through my fingers even as I write these words because the writing was happening and disappearing as it was happening. And so there were tears and I didn't even know if they were tears of of grief or fear or love or they're just tears. No, and I, I know that for some of us, um, you know that it's this it's like we'll get images of of those that we love. Suddenly, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we're just minding our own business, and the image comes or the dream comes. Some of us are having dreams of like those that we love or those we don't even know, and they're just everyone's just dying or getting old internally before our eyes, right? These are archetypal experiences in meditation. It's not even just a Buddhist thing. Actually, um, you know, all, all traditions in the depths of spiritual path, this is one of the cycles. Now, if you think, I've never had that, should I try to do something? No. <laughs> it may not be your theme. It may not be your season for this cycle, but to, to really normalize it, to understand, oh, things are uh, you know, appearing, they're being known, they're clearing out. Can we bring a real continuity of the attention and the caring behind that attention to this process that sometimes is quite unnerving? You know, people come in to check in, they're like, I don't know, maybe I should call so-and-so. I, I, I had this image in meditation, I'm not sure they're okay. And it's like, I mean, of course things happen, but really these are archetypes that come through sometimes in meditation. And the continuity of attention and the caring behind it, the equanimity of mind, really, really important. And also the normalizing of going, oh, I'm in the falling apart cycle. If we can recognize it, we can normalize it. If we don't know what's going on, we get really disoriented. So then we talk about the fear, right? Sometimes the cycle is fear. The way I I think about the fear cycles is when all of a sudden, for no reason, so, you know, we come over that rise in the hill on the path and we go down in the woods, and maybe we've even been in the woods before, but all of a sudden it just gets scary. There's like a little crack of the branch or whatever, and we're like, ah! You know, everything starts to get scary for no apparent reason, really. Like, we know kind of rationally that, well, for example... We don't normally look at a Kleenex box and go, scary. <laughs> but when this cycle moves through me, it's not uncommon. I, and and I, I think I first noticed it with a Kleenex box, which is why I relate it. And it's like, oh, the appearance of the Kleenex box and perception is becoming a little scary. Oh, you know, I mean... Look at what we're doing here. We're unpacking everything we take ourselves to be. We're softening and unwinding who we think we are. So, as we get further down in the roots, that visceral survival fear is going to shine forth, right? It's going to come to the foreground. Again, is it a problem or is practice progressing? So now we have to go back to mindfulness of the nervous system practices, right? Recap because the system is frightened due to the perceptions, you know, of, of all the kind of objects at the Sixth Sense Doors being a little bit frightening. You know? So it's like, okay, let's work from the from you know from the body up. This is a very important time to orient to use our eyes and our necks and look around in the space and go, ah, there's the exit, see it with the eyes. There's a pleasant view out the window, okay. Just get this sense of like, yeah, there isn't any tangible, you know, quote unquote, relatively real danger in the room. Oh, we can take a deeper breath and go, fear. I'll I'll often say, uh, you know, the the archetype of of the difficulties in practice in uh, the the Buddhist teachings is uh, the the archetype of Mara, right? That which comes and tries to take us off our seat. I'll go, oh, fear. Fear, Mara. I see you. I see you. And I take a deeper breath, and I feel my feet, and and I orient, and it's just a sense of like, actually, the Kleenex box is Okay. And it appears a little bit scary right now. You know? Meta practice is a beautiful thing to bring in. The mind starts getting really agitated. It's like, okay, agitated mind and every once in a while, may I be protected and safe. May I be at ease. You know? These really help in fear cycles. You know? And so as I'm moving through these, it's like, you'll recognize, oh yeah, I've experienced fear. Or I've experienced that dissolving. Or, you know, maybe it's more that everything just starts to feel really, really mm, unsatisfactory. There's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes our attention starts to shrink away from everything. It's like, oh, yet another toothbrush in my mouth. I forgot to do my brahmavihara practice while I was brushing my teeth so it's just unsatisfactory teeth that always need care and this toothbrush and have I told you about the brahmavihara practice while you're brushing your teeth? I don't think I have. So if you ever lose attention while you're brushing your teeth, actually somebody I work with individually taught me this. She said, "Heather, I never pay full attention when I brush my teeth, even on retreat. So I just started practicing heart practice. And there's four quadrants of my mouth. So on this quadrant, I practice metta, and on this one, compassion, and this one, joy, and this one, equanimity. It means I brush my teeth for the whole two minutes, which is good, and I get to be more present and more heartful with something that I always space. Yeah. So check it out in your ongoing practice here. What do you space? And, you know, maybe bring in some heart practice or something. You know, make a little creative thing with that place you always space. So I just brought that in to kind of lighten the mood because we're talking about purification, right? Which is heavy. It's heavy, but it's workable. There is a lot of support here. There's a lot of support. We can do this. We are doing this. So sometimes we forget that we can do it and we are doing it and we go into those cycles where it's like, I'm out of here. I can't believe I turned in my cell phone. I can't leave without my cell phone. I'm too embarrassed to contact the managers. What am I going to do? Because I'm out of here. I'm leaving. It's happened to the best of us. And when it comes... It's like to really, really understand that this is a very, very important moment to, like if it's serious, if it's just a thought, oh, you know, how many days left, that's one thing. But if it's like car keys in hand, (laughs) that's a time that you want to write a note to a manager or, you know, if the teachers are all doing check-ins, just go um, in the office and see if anybody's there find one of us because it it just it needs some normalization we need the reminder that we're way deep down here and that there's another cycle to come and and really to get you know not just encourage yourself but to get the external encouragement like i'm cheering you on i love you keep going that's what i say to myself i love you keep going heather you know Um, because it changes none of this stuff lasts Refuge and impermanence is a wonderful thing in cycles of purification, right? It's like, ah, oh, I take refuge. And so we don't necessarily go through all of that, like, all at once or one at a time. I mean, sometimes, but a lot of times it's more thematic. And as we come out of it, we like, our intention for freedom can grow much stronger because if we're in that much dukkha, it gets really clear where the refuge is. And it's not in these changing objects, you know. So, to really be on the lookout also when things are hard in your practice for that re-arising of the intention for freedom. It's your best friend, you know? And so we keep practicing, right? I love you, keep going. Continuing to have those wisdom eyes. Everything changes, when we hold on it hurts, it's not personal. And it's, you know, when we're really practicing like that, this um, this theme, this cycle of equanimity also arises and falls as part of the process, that actually everything evens out. It's not indifferent, it's not numb, it's non-reactive, clear, wise, continuous attention. Sometimes we call this mature equanimity. There are four qualities to mature equanimity that you can be on the lookout for. One is called, um, when equanimity is mature, there's the abandoning of fear. So to me that doesn't mean we're never frightened again because we already looked at yeah there's these themes they rise and pass right but in the case of equanimity where it's the abandoning of fear when something arises pleasant and pleasant or neutral there's no shooting of the second arrow remember the teaching Donald gave about how something happens and then the reactivity is the second arrow that is completely at rest The flip side of abandoning of fear is abandoning of delight. Now again, we need to retranslate this. This doesn't mean that we never feel delighted again. It means that we don't shoot the second arrow of getting high on the practice when it's that powerful and steady and beautiful. That we actually rest into it instead of trying to grow it and get high on it so that we can keep it. We can't keep it. So we release these second arrows of the fear and the delight. Uh, the wisdom lasts long. Often in these cycles, we can sit for long, long periods of time. And even if some discomfort arises, there's no need, nothing's needed. It's, it's, there's enough relaxation to hold it. And it's just steady and long, continuous mindfulness which really supports in that continuous mindfulness, right? And there's a lot of steadiness there, right? A lot of steadiness in that mindfulness, that like everything's arising and passing at the sense doors and the preferencing is gone. It's like the sound is the same essence as the thought, you know, it's like movement of sound, movement of mind, movement of sensation in the body, stillness, it's just, it's all of the same kind of essence. There's no preferencing. So it is then, and and many other times as well, but in terms of, of this kind of path that we're wandering in our hiking boots, um, the, the the conditions are really ripe, actually, for um, the vase, the vase to develop, you know, cracks. Not cracks of wound, but that it starts to um, the solid and separateness starts to dissolve. It starts to break apart. You know. The space inside and the space outside are experienced as one essence. You know. of freedom. Back to aposica key in closing. Those who see this pure condition of Dhamma in full clarity are bound to grow disenchanted with the repeated sufferings of life. When they thoroughly know the truth of the world and the Dhamma, they will see clearly right in the present that there is something that lies beyond all suffering. They will know this without having to ask or take it on faith from anyone. For the Dhamma is pechatang, something to be known for oneself. Those who've seen this truth within themselves will attest to it always. Whatever experience of truth that we see clearly within ourselves Trust it. We let it live through us. We let it inform us. We trust it. So that's what I have to offer for reflection and... Um, I really encourage you to hold this reflection thematically and just, oh, there was the theme from the talk or there was the piece about the cycle that's really alive for me right now in my own practice and just let that inform and the rest of it just sort of goes back into the logs for when it's needed, right? So much respect for your courage and your commitment